Well, I want to share two stories with you to start the sermon. And two things that, that I did that I think were good. Okay, the first story has to do with uh, right around Black Friday. On Thanksgiving night, you know, Black Friday actually starts on Thanksgiving night now, right? I mean, it started earlier and earlier. And so we went out, we actually braved the crowds and we went out to Target. And when we went to Target, we saw a 55-inch Roku TV. Now, I've been wanting to upgrade my TV for a while, and so we're like, oh, we need to get that TV. But the problem is, is that we knew our car was full, because we were at Tammy's parents in Camarillo, and we knew they couldn't fit in our car on the trip home, because it was already full with all the stuff we had. So the next day when we got back on Black Friday, Tyler and I went to Target and got this 55-inch TV. So, yeah, that was pretty good. I, I like that. The second good thing that I did was for over 30 years now, I and now my family and I have sponsored a compassion child. Now, if you don't know anything about compassion, compassion is an organization that allows you to sponsor a, an underprivileged child in a third world country for under $40 a month. You can help a child make sure that they have food, education, and religious teaching, right? You can support this child. And what's really fun is that maybe a few times a year, they send a letter back, and they tell you what's going on in their life. And you can even send them a birthday present, or money for a birthday present, and money for Christmas. And then they tell you what they got with that money. And it's really interesting because sometimes they're like, for my birthday money, I bought this and this for my parents or something. It's like, what? That's supposed to be for you, right? And like they're buying for their family and they're just thinking about, it's just really great to be able to sponsor other children. Now, as you heard these two stories, you might have wondered about the first story. Like, well, how is that doing something good? I mean, you buy yourself a TV. I mean, what, what's with that? I mean, that's so selfish, right? And the truth is, yeah, it is selfish, right? It wasn't really a good thing like helping a compassion child, is it? When I help a compassion child, when we help a compassion child, it's a good thing because we're doing something good for someone who needs help, right? That is really the good thing that we need to think about. Not doing things for ourselves, but in contrast, doing good things for others. So this morning, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, remember, we're disciples, just like the disciples. We're walking alongside Jesus. We're learning from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're in chapter 12. And we're going to see how Jesus talks about how we can do good things, how we need to do good things as his followers. So we're going to look at three different ways we can do good things according to the Scripture. Now, we've talked much about the importance of the Sabbath. Sabbath, of course, is today, right? Sunday, the day that we gather together as God's people to worship together, to sing praise to God together, to fellowship together, to be in the rest that God has for us on this day, to be in his presence and receive the rest that he has for us to receive. We're told to do this in the, the Ten Commandments, right? To worship God to take time out one day a week to worship God. 
We're also told in the New Testament, Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And this is one of the best ways that we can do it is coming into his presence and worshiping him on this day. But as we get to the scripture, we're going to see that there's a little problem. Well, before we get to the scripture, there actually is a little problem with us, okay? If you know anything about the religious leaders of Jesus' time, the Pharisees, they had kind of set up a bunch of rules for the Sabbath. And so, you know, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. And so they're saying, because it's a day of rest, you're not supposed to work. And so then they said, well, what constitutes work? And so they set up all these different rules that tell you what you can and cannot do, what is work and what is not work, okay? But sometimes we can be like the Pharisees. We can get caught up in this concept of Sabbath and we can start to judge other people based on how we feel like they are living up to the Sabbath or not. Right? If we were to admit it, if we were to confess, we sometimes judge others based on how they live or don't live on the Sabbath. Well, this happens to Jesus in Matthew 12. Jesus gets called out by the Pharisees as he's traveling along with his disciples. And they're walking through the grain fields. Now, first of all, you have to know that according to the Pharisees, this was breaking the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath rule, according to, to the Pharisees, was if you walked more than a mile, you were breaking the Sabbath. So really, on the Sabbath, all you were supposed to do is walk to the temple and walk home. You couldn't walk any farther than that. And since they were on this little journey and it was taken through the grain field, they were walking more than a mile, and therefore they were breaking the Sabbath. But there's a second issue going on here, and that is, as the disciples and Jesus were traveling, they started to get hungry, which makes sense, right? I mean, if you've ever traveled any distance, I know when we're traveling, and this is driving, right? You, after a while, you're like, I'm hungry. Let's go get some food, right? How much more so if you're walking a long distance, and you're like, boy, I'm hungry, and you're walking through a grain field, so what are you going to do if you're hungry? You're going to just, I mean, the food's right around you, right? So they grabbed some of the grain, and they started to eat of it. Now, I'm not sure how this happened, but the scripture tells us that the Pharisees saw them doing it. It kind of makes you wonder, like, man, are they, like, following Jesus? Are they, like, trying to... I mean, they were. If you read the scriptures, you know that they're always trying to catch Jesus doing wrong, weren't they? And the scripture tells us that they caught his disciples doing this. And we read in... Matthew 12, 2. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Right? They're your disciples, so because they're doing wrong, you're doing wrong too, because you're letting them do the wrong, right? If you're really their teacher, if you're really their rabbi, if you're really their master, then you should be controlling them, and they shouldn't be breaking the Sabbath like this. See, what they did is they took the wheat from the stalks and they had to rub it together to get the wheat off. And so that was constituting work. And so that was breaking the Sabbath by rubbing it together and by working on the Sabbath. Okay? Now, really, if you think about it, they've actually broken three Sabbath laws by doing this. Okay? First of all, they walked more than a mile. Second of all, they actually took someone else's possession, right? Because that was not their grain. 
And thirdly, they were working by rubbing it together. So they had broken three laws according to the Pharisees. Now, the beauty of Jesus, I love how Jesus answers the Pharisees all the time. You know, because he doesn't just say things off the top of his head. He quotes scripture to them. We, we can learn from this, right? When we're talking to other people, if you know scripture, use scripture in your discussion. Why do you live your life that way? Well, let me tell you. The Bible says, and then you quote scripture to them, and the Bible teaches me to do this and to, do, and to think this and right, to follow this. And so you quote scripture back to them. That's what Jesus does. Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? King David in the Old Testament. He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Jesus is pointing out here, basically, what he's saying is that there's a time when a, person needs, a person's needs outweigh the Sabbath laws. Let me say that again. There is a time when a person's needs outweigh the Sabbath laws. If there's a benefit to breaking the law because someone is in need, then we should not be condemned for it. So let me give you an example. It's illegal to drive through a red light, correct? Yes? You drive over a lead right and a policeman's there, you'll get a ticket, correct? Okay, so let me give you a scenario. So let's say that someone in your family is deathly ill. I mean, they need a hospital immediately, and you know that you don't even want to call 911 because it will take time for the ambulance to get there and then take them to the hospital. So you throw them in your car and you start driving. Now their life is in serious danger, right? So you're not going to drive the speed limit, number one. So you're going to go over the speed limit. And number two, you're not going to stop in any lights, at red lights unless there's cars involved, right? You're going to go through the red lights because you're going to get to the hospital as fast as you can. Why? Because your loved one's life is, is in danger, right? You don't care about the law anymore. The need for you to get there fast is greater than the need for you to follow the law. Are you tracking with me? You understand what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden you're almost to the hospital and a policeman starts to follow you. And the lights go off, right? You're speeding, you're running through red lights. Do you stop? I don't think so. I wouldn't stop. I mean, my, my loved one's life is in danger, right? I need to get to the hospital. I'll deal with the policeman once I get to the hospital. And then once I get to the hospital, hopefully, we don't know this, but hopefully the policeman, once he understands the situation, might not even give you a ticket, right? Might understand that you broke the law because there was a good reason for you to do that. Read the, whenever you see yellow, please read with me. So we're in Matthew 12, 68. So Jesus says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The temple of God was to be honored. But Jesus is saying that he is greater than the temple and that Jesus is a Lord over all, including the Sabbath laws. Through Jesus' words, we see that the law is put into the hands of Christ to be altered, enforced, or dispensed 
in a way that he sees good. It was by the Son of God that the world was made. It was by the Son of God that the Sabbath was instituted. As he is the Lord of Sabbath, he is authorized to make such an alteration that it should become the Lord's day. And if Christ be the Lord of the Sabbath, then all that we do should be dedicated to him, right? If we're doing things and we're dedicating it to the Lord, then it is good because it glorifies God. So by virtue of the power of Christ, we understand that sometimes work is necessary to do good, even on the Sabbath. And that is what's going on with his disciples. But the, the Pharisees continue to follow Jesus. And now there's a, a man who needs to be healed. And again, healing on the Sabbath is constituting work. Okay, So you're not allowed to heal people on the Sabbath. And so now they're watching closely. Is Jesus going to break another Sabbath law? Is, he's going, is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? And so we pick it up in verses 11 to 14. Jesus said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Which would be work, right? You'd be working. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. See, they weren't concerned about the person who needed healing. They weren't concerned about his health. They weren't concerned about their well-being. They were concerned with preserving the law, no matter what. But Jesus says, there is time when work is okay. I mean, this man needs healing today, and I'm going to do it out of love for him. And it's okay to do that on the Sabbath. Doing works on the Sabbath that are necessary or helpful to others is seeking to do good. So that's our first point this morning. But we go to the second one. We continue on. We see that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees continues. It escalates. As Jesus heals even another person, he heals a demon-possessed man. We read in verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. See, the, the Pharisees were very prideful. They wanted the authority. They wanted the power. And they saw their authority and their power going to Jesus, right? The people were following Jesus, and they didn't like that. They weren't concerned that Jesus was doing good. They weren't even concerned if maybe Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. They were concerned that they were losing power. They were losing authority. People were starting to follow Jesus and not follow them. People were starting to, to listen to Jesus and not to them. And they were trying to find any way that they could to discredit Jesus. Now, this is not the first time that they accused Jesus of healing by the power of Satan. I think they probably thought that if they said it enough times, that people would start to believe it. And once they started to believe it, then they wouldn't want to follow Jesus anymore, right? If he's from Satan, then why would we follow Jesus? And so they were trying to do anything they could to get 
people to not follow Jesus anymore. So we continue. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's like, just think about it for a moment. Why would I, if I'm from Satan, why would I drive out demons? I want the demons to be in the people. No, I drive them out by the power of God for the kingdom of God. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I have come so that you might see the power of God at work, the love of God present and ready to fill you, to live with you, to be your Lord. Jesus is telling them that. All Christ followers are part of the body of Christ, and we should think of ourselves as working together, right? And so we should rejoice when other churches, other organizations, other Christians are doing great work for the kingdom of God, right? Because we're part of the kingdom. We should not be divided at all as the people of God. We should work together as God's people, as God's churches. So Jesus is lifting that up. Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together. Unity. My in-laws have some fruit trees in their backyard. And one day I was there, and my mother-in-law asked me to go pick some apricots from the fruit tree. Now, I'm not an expert on apricots, and I was wondering, well, maybe, am I the best person to do this? I never really picked apricots from a tree. I mean, maybe I could walk into a store and I could look at some apricots that had already been kind of chosen by the store, right? And even then, you know, would I pick out the best apricots? So I'm like, ah, okay, well, she asked me to do this, so I'm going to go do it. So I walk out, and, and I, I realize that some are on the ground, so I'm like, okay, those are probably not the good ones I should pick, right? So I'll leave those alone. So then I start to look at the tree, and it, after a while, it becomes pretty apparent. What are good apricots? You know, a nice, good color, right? And what are not? I mean, they're like green or whatever. Well, yeah, those are probably not good. They're super hard or whatever. So after a while, I actually did okay. I picked some apricots off the tree and, and brought them in. It wasn't difficult, really, to see the good fruit from the bad fruit, right? The bad fruit was really obvious, the ones that were on the ground and all mushy and stuff. And that's what our next section of the scripture teaches us. That that's true for you and me. As Christ followers, it's really not that difficult to find out who are the people that are really seeking to live for Jesus. Who are the people who the Spirit is filling and guiding and using, right? It's pretty clear. As Jesus says in verse 33, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Right? When we look at each other's lives, when we look at the life of our church, when we look at the life of other Christians, it really isn't that difficult to, to, to determine who are really true Christ followers, right? Who are bearing good fruit for Christ? Who are the ones who are loving in the way God calls us to love? Who are the ones who are helping those who have need? Who are those who are the ones that are really giving them li their lives over to Christ? 
are they producing good fruit in their lives? Right? Maybe you encourage someone when they're down. You see them and immediately say, hey, that person's down. I need to go and I need to encourage that person. Maybe you give someone an extra little love or maybe you help someone out. You know, maybe you have some money that you give to someone because they have a need or something. You look for the needs around you and you let the Spirit of God guide you and you do good for God by sharing the love of Christ with others who have needs. Maybe you disciple someone and you help them to grow in their faith, which we're called to do as Christ followers, right? There's so many things that we can do as Christ followers to do the good that God calls us to do. We seek to do good when we do the things that bear good fruit. And then we move to the last section. Of all the things that could stop a move of God in your life or in our church, unbelief is at the top of the list. Let me say that again. Of all the things that could stop a move of God in your life or in our church, unbelief is at the top of the list. If faith is a form of belief or trust or having confidence upon something or someone, then unbelief is a lack of trust a lack of confidence, and in short, describes someone who is skeptical, right? If we are to believe in Jesus, we do so because we have faith that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one to come and save people from their sins, God in the flesh, visible for us to see through the scriptures. We just went through Christmas, right? The Christmas season, and that's what Christmas is really about, to understand that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus is, his name means to save the people from their sins. This is who Jesus is. And we need to believe that. We need to believe that strongly, sincerely, deeply. Too often we question God and challenge God, and we ask God, for a sign or a miracle. Like, God, I don't know if I really believe. So, God, will you do this or will you do that? And then I'll believe more. And we, as we get to the last section of our scripture, we see this happening. Again, the Pharisees were really just trying to test Jesus, right? Every time they did something, it was to try to get the people to see that he's a fraud. That's what they wanted to see. And so we get to this point and they ask Jesus for a sign. And some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Prove to us that you are really the Son of God. We want to see a sign. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were a few chapters back, remember John the Baptist was in prison and he sent his disciples to come to Jesus and say, you know, tell us, are you really the Son of God? And Jesus said, I'm not just going to say the words. I want to point to you all of my works that I've done, all the miracles that I've done. Those are a sign that I am the Son of God, God in the flesh. Remember that? And so now the Pharisees are asking Jesus for a sign, but Jesus knows that they're not sincere in this. And so he answers them in verse 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, and it's not sincere. But none will be given 
it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now you might read that like, well, that's kind of confusing, right? That doesn't really make sense. But if you think about it, Jonah, right? Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and he was supposed to preach the gospel to these lost people. But Jonah didn't like the Ninevites and he said, no way, God, I'm not going to do it. And so he tried to hide from God. Remember, he tried to hide from God on the, the ship, but God forced him out, right? And he said, you know what? This storm is happening because of me. Throw me into the water. If I was Jonah, I wouldn't have said that, but he, Jonah said that. He said, throw me in the water because, you know, there's a storm going on, right? I mean, you're in the middle of the ocean. I mean, why would you... Anyway, so he throws it, they throw him in the water, and God brings the, the big fish, right, to swallow Jonah. And how many days did Jonah spend in the belly of the fish? Three days. Is three, did any three days happen any other time? Does, does that have any significance to any other event that happened? Resurrection was three days, right? Three days in the tomb, and then he, he was resurrected. This is what Jesus is saying. This will be the sign for you that I will be killed, but three days later, I will be raised from the dead. That will be your sign. But that will take faith to understand and to see and to believe. That is what Jesus says. I will do greater things because of my power. And you will see the sign happen when I die. And three days later, I'll be raised from the dead. So we have a choice. We can continually seek a sign from God. Be skeptical. Wonder if God's really real. God's, wonder if God's really at work in our life. God, wonder if God is really going to be there for us and help us or whatever. Or we can say, God I want to serve you. I want to live for you. I am going to believe, and I'm going to walk like I'm going to believe, and when I do, I am going to see God at work in my life. You want to know the best way you can see a sign of God at work? It's when someone who doesn't believe in God becomes a believer. That is the greatest miracle. When someone who doesn't believe in Jesus comes to you and you tell them your story, you tell them about Jesus, you tell them why they need to have faith in Jesus and they believe and their life is changed and transformed, that is the greatest miracle of all. And that is a sign that Jesus is at work. And that is what God calls us to do as his followers. That is what God calls us to do as his people. That should be our goal for 2020. Working. Can we hit the, this, the next slide, please? And one more. There we go. So we seek to do good by preaching Jesus and seeing repentance, as Jonah did. Jonah, when he finally got out of the, the belly of the fish, he said, okay, God, okay, I'll go tell, tell them about you. And he did, and they all repented and believed. Now, he didn't like that because he didn't like the Ninevites. But he did what he was called to do, and God worked through him. When we do what God calls us to do, when we minister to people that God calls us to minister to, we will see God work in their lives. And that will be exciting. Very exciting. A pastor was... Uh, 
uh, talking to one of his congregation members. And his congregation member said, you know, I really like basin theology. And the pastor looked at him like, basin theology? What is that? I've never heard of basin theology. I mean, I've been in seminary. I've you know, read books. What is basin theology? We said, well, you know, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, and Pilate could have done something good by freeing Jesus, right, releasing Jesus, he called for a basin and he washed his hands of it. He didn't want anything to do with it. But when Jesus met with the disciples, he called for a basin, and he took that basin, and he washed the disciples' feet. Basin theology. Are you going to wash your hands of the good that God wants you to do and say, you know, I'm just going to live my own life, I'm just going to do my own thing? Or are you going to wash each other's feet? Are we going to do the good that God calls us to do? That is what we need to do as Christ followers, we need to seek to do good in the lives of others around us. And we need to seek to share the gospel so that we can see people believe. Do you, does your heart ache for the lost? Like Jesus' heart aches for the lost? I pray that in 2020, our heart would start aching more and more and more for the lost. So that we are so compelled to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. I hope you make that your goal. I'm going to make that my goal. And our church is going to make it our goal as well. Let us pray.